Welcome to Mission Now, a series of the Mission Matters podcast here at St. Louis University. Mission Now is a monthly conversation featuring Father David Sobalski, the Vice President of Mission, and Dr. Amber Johnson, the Interim Vice President of the Division of Diversity and Innovative Community Engagement. Each month, these two engage lively dialogue around current campus events, their relevance and impact from the perspective of their respective offices, and the ways in which those events invite all of us in the SLU community to live the mission here and now. I am Virginia Herbers, the Director of Mission Formation, and I am pleased to bring you this special series from the Office of Mission and Identity. Welcome back. We are here again today, and our topic for this particular episode is personal wellness and community wellness, and specifically uh, what the experiences of the two of you are with the Student Wellbeing Task Force. So lots to cover with this topic. Where should we start? I think a great place to start is just defining wellness and looking at the intersections of equity, wellness, and spirituality and how those things match up. Because regardless of whether or not you're a person of color or a queer or LGBTQ member, or if you are a, an atheist or a faith-based person, or if you, you know, have diagnosis or known mental health issues or not, these three bodies work in everyone. And so I think it's a really important distinction to think through what equity, wellness, and spirituality have in common, how they intersect, um, and be real clear about how we're talking about those terms for our audience. Well, again, if your experience at St. Louis University or in the city of St. Louis is where you find yourself on the margin or your voice is not respected and being heard, what does that do for you, for your well-being as a healthy person, as a person who has hopes and aspirations and, and seeks the opportunities to accomplish those things. If you are constantly operating from a deficit, your aspirations, your dreams are going to be accomplished, basically. And what does that do to your well-being? You know, when you're frustrated, when you're constantly anxious and you are mistrustful of organizations or systems or whatever you've got in play, because I think the default position, and SLU's not unique in this, it's like, well, we do. We have this whole list of opportunities to seek out help and to be heard. And do people really know all of that? I think that's one of the questions that's come up in this task force is how, how do people learn about these things, let alone what are we doing to create barriers to access those services, for example? So it kind of gets back to this unexamined life thing for just putting one foot in front of the other and not taking time to pause, reflect so that we can act more wholly. And that's with a WH as well as just an H. Then you can have all of the services that are available out there and then have no one taking advantage of. So let's, let's demystify some of these issues off the top. One, wellness cannot happen in isolation. It is a community endeavor, right? So we cannot have personal wellness without community wellness, and we cannot have community wellness without personal wellness. These two things go hand in hand. Number two, you cannot have wellness without equity, right? So again, if, if your job is just trying to meet your basic needs of survival, and you are being constantly interrupted with barriers to that, right? Whether it's food security, housing security, financial security, friendship, safety in your neighborhood, having a house in general, right? All of these things can be barriers to having and being able to access opportunities to thrive. And then on top of that, 
that whole spirit piece. So it doesn't matter if you consider yourself a religious or spiritual or non-religious, non-spiritual person. This idea of being a human and, and being born means that there are elements to us, mind, body, soul, mind, body, spirit, that we have to take care of. So even if we're talking about emotional wholeness, where does that exist in the body? That's a soul spirit issue, physical wholeness. All of these things merge. And so when we're talking about wellness, we have to be talking about all these little parts. So if DICE's job is to help eliminate these barriers that cause inequities, if mission and identity's job is to be able to help people understand how spirit wellness, the, the soul of, of a person is all interconnected in these communities. And then the university's job is to push for academic excellence and um, being able to take advantage of opportunities so that you can go on and serve that greater good with that higher purpose. We have to be talking about all these things together as well, right? Because we cannot do that work in isolation and then ask our students, our faculty, and our staff to be thinking about them at intersections. Sure. All that having been said, I want to make sure at least caution that we're never going to be perfect, that we're always going to have that challenge. The community is always going to have a challenge, that we're striving for the more perfect union to be Abraham Lincoln about this sort of thing. And that we have to accept that because of that imperfection, that there will be times when we fail or that others will fail us. And that we have a choice to make on how we respond to how other people fail us. Just as an example here, we have the obligation to live our life as fully and with great integrity as possible. But I think one of our challenges just on this campus alone, let alone in our society today, is that the capacity to be understanding of others who may disappoint us isn't really there. And as a consequence, too many of us, and I include myself in this, allow other people to push our buttons, even if they're doing it without much reflection or thinking, as well as those people who, after much reflecting and thinking, starts mashing buttons like nobody's business. You know, they're purposely trying to trigger people. Uh, and so I think part of our discussion of wellness is like, it's like, how do we manage the imperfect world in which we live? And in as much as we need as an institution to minimize the barriers to wellness, nonetheless, we also need to encourage people to be resilient and to accept that there will be challenges, there will be occasional failures, and other people will be at fault, but that's not going to cripple me and my response to the world. There's a, a great nudge in the camp around folks who study failure and looking at failure as a possibility. So funny story, the post-it note. The person who created the post-it note created it as an accident. It was a response to a failure. So he originally was trying to create the world's strongest adhesive and ended up making a temporary adhesive. And so I think for some people, they would have just given up and said, well, I'll keep trying for this strong adhesive. But instead he said, well, maybe I can use this for something else. And post-it notes are some of the most widely used office supplies today. You walk into any office, there's going to be post-it notes there. I map out my ideas with post-it notes. I love, they're everywhere. See, for those in our audience who can't see us, Father Swalski just hails up some post-it notes. Now I'm showing my post-it notes. There is possibility in failure. And just because we have failed does not mean that we are failures. And I think oftentimes we might give ourselves the grace to fail and then adjust and try again but we oftentimes don't give other people that grace, right? So oftentimes we think when someone fails, that is the total sum of their character. That is who they are. When we're in the classroom, we call it the learning edge. The idea of meeting people where they learn. 
So when someone has failed and disappointed us greatly, we have an opportunity. And as an educator, I'm required to take this opportunity. As a non-educator, you're not required to, but you might feel compelled to. When someone fails, there's an opportunity to say, can I share with you what I know? Can I share with you my experiences so that we can grow together and do better together? Now, once we meet that learning edge, there's another opportunity where, like you said, some people know they've been reflective and they still choose to trigger you and cause trauma. In those moments, you also have the opportunity to sever that relationship. Let's be real clear. You don't have to be in community with everyone. So if someone espouses ideas that cause you direct harm, you can choose to walk away and not be in relationship with that person. And sometimes it might feel daunting or impossible, right? Because it's a professor for a class you absolutely need to graduate or because it's your roommate. Nobody should have to be in space and in community with people who cause them direct harm. You can choose to tailor your life so that the things that are in your immediate presence help you survive and thrive, full stop. We all have choices. And I really want us to think about what it means to embrace failures, not just in ourselves, but in those that are in our community, because it's a moment of possibility. It's a moment to grow and become better together versus you are like this. This is who you are. And I'm not going to give you the chance to be someone else. You know, it is kind of matter in my mind of balance. Every day is not a day of success and every day is not a day of failure. But if we live a balanced life, we acknowledge that there will be some successes and there will be some fails. And, you know, that, I think that really is kind of the idea of maturity, that at some point as you grow and you learn and you become more mature, your perspective becomes more and more balanced. It doesn't mean that you give up your passions, but nonetheless, maybe your expectations become a little more moderate especially of others. And in turn, you expect that to be reciprocal. You expect that to happen to you. And I'm counseling uh, couples whose weddings I'm going to witness. I, I always look at them and say that the foundation of your relationship is that it must be mutual, life-giving, and reciprocal. You cannot demand of your spouse something that you're not going to share with your spouse. And you have the right to expect that sort of respect and response in turn. But sometimes I think we kind of forget that the spirit of reciprocity here is one that we need to expect more than what we see in our society today. That if you want to be listened to, then you also have to demonstrate that you will listen and listen deeply, not as I'm going to wait until you're finished talking because I already know what I'm going to say, listening, but this notion of dialogue and exchange so that we might together learn and grow and become, we all become more interesting one to the other. Or compassionate. Or compassionate. That was a good one. Insightful, intentional. I mean, the university is a learning community. So why are you here if you're not open to learning? If your preconceived notions are sufficient for you, then don't waste your tuition dollars in a university setting. So that notion of exploring new things is, I think, really key. And some of those new things may be difficult ideas that we haven't had to confront before. And do we run away or do we listen with respect and see if there's value to what's being said? Because... This notion of community is especially important in Jesuit university life. And one of the things that we'd lost with the pandemic, when especially two years ago this month, we were just closed and separated one from the other, was the lack of community, the lack of 
engagement and the opportunity to be with others and how important that turns out to be as part of our own growth and experience of university life is, as I say, it's not just programmed by the registrar for a class, but it's the 10 minutes after the class the professor's willing to give you to clarify a point or it's walking down the mall in that accidental encounter that results in a cup of coffee and a 20 minute conversation of sharing of ideas and all the joys of, of life or however we want to look at it. And it's going down to Chaffetz to a, to a basketball game and being with 10,000 people screaming their support for what's happening on the court. So all, all of those things that didn't happen, community didn't happen. Right. And as I say, nobody seeks to go to have a university experience in their basement. You want to be with others in order to have that experience that's unique to you, but is shared in some ways with 12, 13,000 other people. The question of what have we lost with the pandemic when it comes to wellness in communities, not just for the community itself, but for individuals? And how do we get it back? Is it just coming back in person or is, is there yeah. more work that needs to be done? There's a lot of work that needs to be done. So a few things we lost. I don't think we are having enough intentional conversations around mental health and how that isolation and that anxiety and that fear has caused major ruptures in our mental health. And I think for some people, there are some people who can fake it till you make it really well. And so it looks like, oh, everything's fine. Um, and then, of course, with social media, most people look like they're fine. Um, and so I think that makes people reluctant to be honest about their mental health and well-being. So I think we're going to see research around this 15, 20, 30 years out, really looking at how this has impacted society as a whole. And another thing that's even a little more personal, going home and working from home meant not having those moments in the hallways with people. And on the one hand, you realize just how much you learn, collaborate, and communicate with your peers just in the hallways. But on the other hand, I realized how many microaggressions I didn't have to deal with, you know, whether it's questions about my hair or, you know, I've been called a creature. I've been, you know, you speak so well for a Black person. Those comments, not having those bolstered my mental health and well-being. And so there's a balance. I think for people who fit in the majority in terms of cultural groups, I think there's a much bigger desire to be back, to be back in the office, to be back with our peers. I think for people who experience the world from a marginalized place, it wasn't as big of a, a, a desire. So people who have accessibility issues or disabilities, Working from home was was a breath of fresh air. Relief. Their, mm -hmm, their homes are accessible and they don't have to deal with people questioning their disabilities, right? And I, I think for people who deal with social anxiety, being at home was great. And then there's the environmental aspect. There's so much about the environment that was repaired because we weren't all driving. And so I think it's a both and, you know, we, we did lose stuff by not being in community, but I think it also illuminated what we have to address as we return. Well, and talk about hallway conversations after the cabinet meeting today where the presentations were about university space, flexible work as an ongoing benefit which you know immediately is coming out of the pandemic and that, that experience of people working from home. But the conversation, and I, I was the one that prompted and I said, you know, it was an interesting discussion. We still haven't engaged and challenged fundamental assumptions, mm. which would be a five-day work week, which would mm -hmm. be an eight-hour work day, which would be uh, two weeks of vacation 
how are we structured as a school? I mean, universities are notorious. I mean, they've developed a system back in the 19th century and it's essentially unchanged. So what does it mean for a flexible classroom? And all of that, that might happen too. I mean, from my uh, secondary ed experience, I can tell you right now, since I was in three different all boys high schools, that starting school at 7.45 in the morning for adolescent males is remarkably stupid. I mean, I remember a study that one of the teachers did in Sacramento, and it was just kind of accidental, but he had a math class and they had a YouTube channel. And the guys had to demonstrate how they answered these different math problems. But one of the things the analytics showed him was when these guys were on their YouTube site. And it was crickets before nine in the evening. And then it slowly went up, but the peak was at one in the morning. And then it would start to decline. So by about two o'clock a.m., then they were done for the day, right? But for many of those guys, that one or two o'clock in the morning were up at six, so they could be back on campus by 7.30 or so. That was just their rhythm. That was the rhythm of that set of adolescent males. And to say that they were the only ones doing that, just, you know, wasn't true, period. I have a 14-year-old, and I can affirm that that is exactly what happens. And, And every week or so, he's, mom, I'm fixing my sleep schedule so I can get up on time. And I'm like, okay, well, what's your new... That's your new schedule. And he'll do it for like three days and he's right back into it. Right. And so, you know, we talk about even just flexible work and well-being. I loved one of our VPs who said it's not just about work from home. It's about how and when we work. The 40 hour work week was designed for a workforce that was male, that had wives and kids at home to hold down the house. So you could be out in public for 40 hours a week because you knew that home was taken care of. We don't live in that world anymore. And the majority of us, regardless of gender, have responsibilities at home. And so working 40 hours a week, that absolutely can deteriorate our mental health and our well-being and our physical health. It's interesting, too, because the 40-hour work week was thought to be a great innovation, and it was, because typically, again, men would be working six days a week, 12 hours a day. So it was the unions that were driving a 40-hour work week, and that was considered this incredible reform of the expectations of the workplace. But we see it at the university, too. I mean, how many professors want to teach an 8 a.m. class? How many I'm students? an anomaly there. I love it. I'd be done by noon. I'm like, I got the whole day. <laughs> we had a retired Jesuit philosopher who named George Kennard. This is early 2000s. And on the 15th floor of Jesuit Hall is, is this space for if you miss dinner or something, you'd make a sandwich. There's a fridge that's got soda and beer and that sort of thing. So, And George got found out he was doing adjunct for the philosophy department. And he told me one day, he says, you know, it's really surprising that Nobody wants to teach an eight o'clock class. And that's my favorite time of day. Then he got found out by Father O'Brien because he would empty the fridges of all of the cans of fruit juice. And then he'd clear out any pastries or things that had been set up because he he said, you know, I don't think those kids eat breakfast before they come to my eight o'clock class. And you can't do philosophy on an empty stomach. And, And I said, and he goes, and they look like they've just rolled out of bed. And I go, yes. And yes. And yes, <laughs> turns out Jesuit Hall was providing breakfast for 20 students every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Kind of came to a stop. But, but getting back to the original point of some of our underlying, unexamined, 
assumptions, how we do things. And when we talk about wellness, particularly for students, we have to kind of realize who they are. I mean, they're still young people. They still have different rhythms than, say, old farts like me have. And um, they have to accommodate a system that isn't designed to be very accommodating in that sense, because we don't ask it to. We don't challenge ourselves to look at that. Accommodations. That's the rub. What kinds of accommodations can we make so that everyone who shows up to live, work, and learn here feels seen, feels heard, feels valued? And what does that look like specifically at St. Louis University, at our institution with our Jesuit mission? Who knows what it looks like? But I think that's a question that's worth asking, right? If you could design the optimal workplace that is SLU-centered, Jesuit-focused, mission-aligned, what does that look like? And I bet we'd get some really neat ideas. And I, for one, would love to just scooter around campus. I'd have a good old time. I think some of those things, to give credit where credit is due, have changed, right? Sometimes with uh, some criticism. I mean, the Slaruba over by the rec center there, when those were first put in, that used to be an apartment building with a pharmacy and got taken down. And then these pools got put in and people were like, what? At one point, they even had palm trees, you know, and volleyball court. And I know for a fact that those old fathers from the day would have never in a million years thought that that was what needed to be on a university campus. Or the information comments that you see in Pius Library now, that's an innovation of collaborative workspace and access to technology that wouldn't have been in anybody's DNA 20 years ago, let alone 50 so I think we've done some changes. I think just the fact that the campus tends to be pretty beautiful. Whereas when I first got here to do my interviews to enter the Society of Jesus in 1982, it just looked like a wreck. I tend to be a visual person and I tend to respond to my environment and I couldn't understand why anybody would go to school here. So like I said, to give credit where it's due, that things have changed, whether or not they've changed enough is of course a question that we need to continue to address. I think the provost wanted this task force put together that's represented by faculty, administration, staff members, as well as student participation, really coming out of our experience of the pandemic and the stress and anxiety that just about everybody feels and what is that impact, particularly upon our students. We had the unfortunate experience of the two students who died by suicide at the beginning of the fall semester, uh, two totally unrelated experiences, except for the death itself, of course, and how everybody was already kind of operating on fumes. And then we had these traumatic moments that were witnessed. And, and what are the implications for the university as far as having enough in the way of services, like the counselors, for example? How do we respond with the demands of a rigorous academic calendar when you just aren't at 100%? Who's listening to who? What can we do to make the environment of the university easier to navigate, so to speak? Uh, Amber, what am I missing there? I think our work on the Student Wellbeing Task Force is also indicative of some of those changes and innovations that you're talking about. The people who were selected to sit on that task force weren't selected because of their title. They were selected because of a value they bring to this campus. And we have people from all different pockets who are both student-facing and not student-facing. And we have students. You know, as we are finalizing our list of recommendations to share with our campus community, I think it really reflects an intentionality and a care 
that I think a lot of our students don't know exists yet because they haven't experienced it directly. And I think a lot of people are going to be really pleased when they see the work that we've done and how we've woven equity and inclusion and accessibility and diversity through that entire document. We've woven what it means to be both a student and a whole person. Um, and, and I think those things are really reflected in that space. I don't know that I've ever sat on a task force that had any vice presidents, let alone two. And we show up to all of those meetings. And let me tell you, audience, some of those meetings are three hours long where we are literally working and writing together. And I think that shows a commitment on behalf of both the DICE office and mission and identity. Like we are committed to making sure that our students have capacity to thrive and that the resources are available. And that's really the whole operative of healing justice. It's not just saying, here's some resources. It's saying, I'm advocating for you to use these resources by putting them in your face and making sure you feel comfortable accessing them. I'm also honoring that there are multiple ways to be well and be in community. And again, I think that our recommendations reflect that. So I'm, I'm really excited to see how they are received by our campus community and some of the criticisms that come back to help us make it even better and stronger. But that was a really fun experience, just thinking through all the different ways that we can promote a culture of well-being at St. Louis University. And there will be some resistance, certain I can anticipate criticism, but it's change and change doesn't come easy for many people and doesn't come easy for an institution. And so there'll be a lot of discussion that are around these things. And there may very well be ideas that we didn't surface that need to be entertained, right, as part of this deal. But we're seeing this as a holistic enterprise, this is not just a recommendation to bring therapy dogs to campus three times a semester sort of thing. This is a systemic way of how we work with one another. And much the same way as like in a classroom, I mean, we've all had those experiences of an awesome lecturer who can declaim for 50 minutes and do that three days a week. And it's pretty awesome. I had an experience of one of those professors here. I, he didn't take questions. He put his briefcase on the desk and he began exactly where he had finished on the previous lecture and he was fascinating. But that's kind of that sage on the stage bit here. And if we take seriously these notions of collaboration and shared learning and learning from other experiences and everything else that, that we use today, that means we have to rethink about how our classrooms are managed, how our activities are surfaced and, and promoted on and on and on. And I mean, that would be, to go all Catholic, that would be one of the critiques uh, these days about church with a, a strong liturgical life, right? Because you have this drive from outside of the church of innovation, change, and then you have a ritual whose purpose is not to surprise anybody. And so how do you manage these two things? And if you just are only going to operate from this change, change, innovate, innovate sort of thing, you're not going to find much comfort going to the 8 p.m. mass, no matter how awesome the homeless is, which like last Sunday, it was me. So it was really awesome <laughs> how good the, the music is, because there's great comfort in knowing what's going to happen each step of the way. And so we have to be able to have both legs in both camps, so to speak. Absolutely. Well, looking at the time and realizing this conversation could go on forever, uh, just a couple comments. One is how 
hope-filled and exciting it is to hear the two of you talk about the work of this task force. And I think I can reasonably speak on behalf of the SLU community and just thank you for all that has happened there and thank everyone who's participated in that task force. It's something to look forward to, that document. To wrap up this conversation, uh, we have talked about the importance of resilience and dialogue. We've talked about the things that have both been lost and gained in the past two years of pandemic. We've talked about the need to challenge basic assumptions, that ongoing question for us. The need to give grace for one another's failures, ourselves included. The notion of wholeness and holiness, healing justice, collaboration, and shared learning, all within the context of equity, spirituality, and wellness. Well, I want to say this publicly, thank the two of you very, very much, very grateful because recognizing what your schedules hold, I am grateful beyond grateful for the time you give to this, speaking about the need to address what's happening on campus now from the perspective of living out the mission with as much equity and wellness as we can. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. My pleasure, always a pleasure. And until next time, take care and remember, we are one slew where the mission matters. Boom. Boom.